Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 40, Inophalum Veritas, where we will be looking at chapters 78 and 79 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of inhibitions. You liked my name? I loved your name, actually. I was about to say so. <laughs> cool. Alrighty. Quick programming note. As we are recording this, the west coast of the United States is dealing with probably the worst air pollution, air conditions, hazardous air, everything, like, ever that we've recorded. That's because the west coast is on fire and we live in western Oregon. So there is a mild chance, but not a very likely chance, that we may have to interrupt our scheduled episodes right as we get to the end of the book. We're sorry about that. But last week there was a fire 15 miles away from us. And I'm sure that you would rather that we take care of ourselves and our podcasts. We'll probably let you know on Twitter if there's any disruption. We plan to stay safe. No worries on that part. We're in a place that is unlikely to have to evacuate, but we are not going to bank on that. We're trying to keep safe, and we'll keep you guys aware. Okay. So to make up for that long-winded explanation of why we may or may not have issues releasing the podcast on time for the next couple of episodes, here's an explanation of the podcast. Each week we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phrenemos of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact and wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin... First of all, we're in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Though, as always, we're open to that. Second of all, we're going to be talking about spoilers for pretty much everything in the series throughout all of this, so get used to it. Also, this is the end of the first book. If you don't want to know what happens at the end of the first book, why are you here? Pretty much. <laughs> Finally, and most importantly, while it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, we're not going to stand for any abuse of the author. Just be kind, folks. The world is unkind enough as it is. So, now it's time for us to do a 45-second recap, and it is my turn. Let me get you a timer going. Thank you. I don't have my phone in here. Here you go. Alrighty, are you ready? Whew, yeah. In three, two, one, go. Our two young protagonists hatch a plot to poison the beast, with a great dinner pot, with some profit left over at least. While Denna's delirium makes it a bit tricky to get the right dosage of serum, Kvothe can't afford to be picky. They set their Dracus trap and settle in at the Greystone, while they snuggle up for a nap, while their quarry wanders the woods alone. In her hazy state, Denna reveals a dark truth about what happened at the Moffin estate, while Kvothe takes heed of her sooth. 26.48 seconds. I made it. No cherries for me. No cherries for you because we chose a section of the book where almost nothing happens. Yeah, it's more moving the chess pieces around for the grand climax. All right. So for this episode, we chose as our lens inhibitions. 
In this case, we have Denna, who is still suffering the effects of the ophalum resin, which, I mean, she's not in a good way, but her connections between her waking mind and her sleeping mind have loosened a bit. I think that that's a good way to look at it. Now, I think we also could have chosen a lens that more demonized the use of substances like ophalum or more accurately the overuse or the irresponsible use of things like alcohol, hard drugs, hard drugs, <laughs> depends on who you are, what you think is a hard drug, but the use of chemical substances to alter your brain. It would have been completely disingenuous on our part because so while neither one of us go overboard and neither one of us like feeling inebriated we do partake in things like occasional beers or occasional weed or caffeine cards on the table here i used to do cloud consulting for the cannabis industry so our moral compass points towards be responsible rather than abstain. As with any of these substances, there are benefits and there are risks, and there are certain ethical concerns that have to be taken into account when you deal with people who are using them, such as making sure that you are not taking advantage of lowered inhibitions to get something from them that you otherwise might not be able to. Another note, if you are someone who is sober, whether that is you've never had any of these substances or you are doing your best to take one day at a time to keep yourself from using any of these substances, bravo. It's a valid choice. It is, especially if it's something that is hard for you to choose every day. And we respect it. So we will be talking about kind of the lighter side of what this Ophalum has been doing to Denna, but also the darker side of what it could lead to. If you struggle with addiction, if you struggle with any of the themes in this couple of chapters of the book, we're not going to feel bad if you can't listen to us talk about it. Absolutely. And if you need help, by all means, reach out. What we might be able to provide for you is hotlines and suggestions for professional help, but we ourselves are definitely not equipped to take on that huge of a responsibility, but we're happy to talk. With that out of the way, let's, uh, let's dive in, shall we? Having resolved that they need to kill the beast, Denna and Kvoth start trying to figure out what they're going to do. It is notable that the chapter name is Poison. So to start us off here, we see that the Dracus is already starting to show effects from the ophalum that it has ingested, similar to Denna, in that it's energetic and perhaps overly happy and distractible. As in, it would like to fork some trees, please. Yeah. <laughs> Denna is similarly seeing her mind go everywhere. It can't seem to settle on a given track at any given point. I have actually been similarly affected by cards on the table. I have used weed to help me with anxiety. 
And especially when it was first legal in Washington state, it wasn't very well documented on what effects what strains would have. And there was one that made me just kind of thing to thing to thing to thing to squirrel to thing to thing to squirrel. <laughs> and oh boy, that was terrifying and terrible. And I hated it because the whole point of me taking it was so that I wouldn't be anxious. Well, yeah. There's some truly terrifying bits about what the Dracus is doing other than being amorous with the trees that it is knocking down, the hundred-year-old oak that it is knocked down. <sighs> and also just breathing fire everywhere. And given the fact that, I mean, we're, as mentioned earlier, in peak fire season right now, I'm just imagining how this forest is not in a giant conflagration. It's because the Dracus has instincts to snuff the fire as soon as it makes it. Yeah, but in its ophalomaddled state, who's to say that those instincts are working the way they should? I mean, they probably aren't. Yeah. Lucky for us, there is no forest fire scene in here because I don't know that either one of us are in the headspace where we would like to read about that. Correct. This is why, as much as I think every single person needs to read Parable of the Sower. Maybe if you're on the west coast of the United States, don't read that right now. Do it, but not now. You can wait. It'll still be there. I mean, it's almost 20... No, sorry. God, I'm old. It's almost 30-year-old book, so you can wait a little bit. But everyone should read it. I do think that we need to at least focus a little bit on... Denna automatically calls the Dracus a she... And Quoth is like, why do you think it's a she? And her response is just, why do you think it's a he? Yeah, it is interesting how oftentimes male is assumed as the default for a lot of creatures. And, I mean, we don't know the gender of the Dracus because we don't know a whole lot about Dracus physiology. And the mating habits of the common Dracus, as far as it has been relayed to us, hasn't told us how to identify between the two. Which one would think would be pretty important for the mating habits. I mean, granted, for all we know, Dracuses reproduce asexually and have a completely different gender setup. But either way, choosing male as the default is pretty foolish. And if you're already committed to foolishness, why make that assumption? Okay. Think bigger than that. And <laughs> I think it's fine to call the Dracus a she. This also kind of reminds me of when we did our little mini-series on Fortunately the Milk, and Steg, at least in the beginning, was referred to as she. I'd also like to point out, like, pretty things, pretty animals, pretty constructions are referred to as she. The Dracus, from what I can tell, is not pretty. At least not traditionally so. And so we assume male, which I think is very, very unfortunate because there are very many really pretty guys out there. And there are also some women who don't feel the need to be pretty in order to be a woman. So here is where Denna comes up with a plan. She says, hey, why don't we lure it off the edge of a cliff? And she's able to pretty quickly intuit how 
the creature's increased mass would make that fall more dangerous to it than it would to most other creatures. Comparing it to how an ant falling off of a table would be comparatively unharmed compared to a human. Quoth even says that she was talking about the square cube ratio, though she didn't call it that. What I wanted to kind of point out here is that this is in her inebriated state. She is clearly articulating a concept that I know a lot of people have gone, but why can't we just have supersized ants? And, I mean, she drugged. I think part of it is that she is already very intelligent. We've already seen that. And even in her drugged state, her ability to intuit things is clearly still working just fine. And it's still making connections. We've already seen that she's a much better detective than Quoth is because she's actually able to observe the world around her. And now she doesn't have a conscious mind filtering everything. She's just making connections left and right. It's kind of telling that Quoth is like, but that's not very heroic. Yeah, he's kind of still hooked on this idea of himself as a protagonist. I mean, he is the protagonist. So, yeah, it's definitely that sort of meta-knowledge that gets people killed, actually. <laughs> Thinking that they have to be the hero of every story means that they don't ask for help, that they overlook actual effective strategies to solve problems as opposed to thinking about how they look. I think that this can be tied back into your distinction of how now that Denna is inebriated, that that kind of barrier between her waking and her sleeping mind has been lowered. And I think that a lot of people try to use drugs to induce that. There's a myth that to be creative, you should either, you know, get drunk or high in order to make sure that the creative mind gets to be creative. I think the need to escape is oftentimes what pushes people towards these sorts of myths and fallacies that the real world is so harmful that you have to escape to be creative. And that really just isn't the case. People escape because they need to escape. And once they have escaped, then they're able to be in a place where they don't have to worry about the everyday things. And that's where the creative part comes in. However, that said, if you create a world that you don't need to escape, you can still be plenty creative. The myth that I was talking about where you can only be creative because of drugs or because of a mental illness or whatever, or, you know, mental illness is superpower or drugs is superpower. Being drugged out of your mind does not make you want to pick up your pen and start drawing. You might have unfocused energy, enter Denna. But as Quoth says, her reckless energy and her squirrel does not lead to them getting to their campsite with any speed. It just means that he has to babysit her and go and like, no, 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 damn it. Or where did she go? Oh, God. I mean, it's the same position that anyone who's ever been the designated driver on a pub crawl has ever been through. It is thankless. I remember many years ago, I was at a friend's wedding, 
and two of my friends there decided that the open bar was an excuse to have a drinking competition. I was at that wedding. Yes, you were. I was the photographer at that wedding. So anyway, my friends decided that they'd have this drinking competition, and naturally, as the sensible one, I was the one who stopped drinking hours ahead of them and was thus sober enough to drive them home. And it is not fun to be the sober one while everyone else is drunk. I know these two friends quite well, and um, as not fun as it is to be around drunk people when you are the sober one, it is incomprehensible how you dealt with either of them, much less both of them, at the same time. I, oh, because both of them insist that they do not get drunk. Yeah, they were drunk. I've seen both of them drunk. It's not pleasant. Not to be, like, judgmental on whether or not being drunk can sometimes be fun. Because, let's be real here, being inebriated can be fun. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. As long as you're doing it safely and responsibly, or at least as safely and responsibly as you can. People make stupid decisions when they're drunk, and if they're harmless-ish, I'm not going to get on their case. But if they're dangerous and stupid, like, I don't know, getting into a vehicle and deciding to drive, I reserve the right to be very judgmental about people who make that decision, who don't give their keys to somebody that they can trust not to give them back. Yes. And that element of decision-making is crucial. Like, knowing what you're doing is important. All for having fun if that's the kind of fun you want to have. That said, be kind to your friends who agree to be the designated driver because I can guarantee you it's usually not nearly as much fun for them because your jokes aren't as funny as you think they are and your antics are not amusing and usually they just want to go home and relax. It's stressful. Now, to pull back the curtain a little bit on you, when you do drink, you just get quiet and thoughtful. So we both enjoy Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and there's a character, Amy, who apparently all of her co-workers understand what one-drink Amy is, and what two-drink Amy is, and what four-drink Amy is. So it goes, one-drink Amy is a little spacey, two-drink Amy is loud, three-drink Amy has dance pants, four-drink Amy is a little bit of a perv, five-drink Amy is weirdly confident, six-drink Amy is just sad and Gina's Sasquatch, 7-Drink Amy is unknown, 8-Drink Amy is a really terrible equestrian, and 9-Drink Amy just speaks French. Right, so you just get kind of sullen and quiet. Yeah, I'm a depressive drunk. Which means we don't like to get you drunk. Yeah, not usually. Like, once I get through the wall of depression, then I get more extroverted, but even then, I eventually just get tired. <laughs> right. So it's not like you get drunk and you get fun. You just get bleh. I get sleepy. I know. It's like, okay, you're adorable. Let me go ahead and cuck you into bed. I'm just going to go take a nap here. And then I'm just going to sleep it all off. And there will be no fun. There's no fun drunk, Will. Nope. I mean, I've seen you drunk. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So... That usually involves, first, you say something that you think is terribly funny and you laugh a lot at it. And then, if I'm not laughing with you, you ask me 
if I think you're funny and then you note that I'm not laughing and then you get really sad that I don't think you're funny and then you think you're not funny and then you get angry then you say something that cracks you up again and then the cycle repeats. It's pretty exhausting. <laughs> Thanks. To be fair, though, the last time that this happened was years and years ago, was it not? Yeah, it was back in, like, 2012. Yeah. I don't like being inebriated. Like, I don't like getting to that point where I don't feel like I'm in control. And it's fine if there are people that do like that. It's just not me. So I choose not to do that. This, however, though, means that beer hits me harder because I don't drink often. Yeah, and, you know, I'll have a beer here and there, but usually it just means at the end of it, I'm pretty sleepy. I know. It's like, talk Will into bed. Guys, it's 8 o'clock. I'm going to bed. But that's you normally. Yeah. <laughs> the reason for that may or may not have to do with the fact that our kitty Sokka likes to wake us up at 4 in the morning, though. So anyway. Now that we have gone down that road, let us... Steer the ship back towards what we were talking about in the first place. So, in terms of inhibitions, what strikes you as notable in this chapter? So, Denna is more impulsive than we typically see her. Usually, she's doing things specifically because there's a reason to do so. She has more direct agency. At this point, she's kind of skipping all over the place. Like, she says, hey, give me the load and stone. I'm going to go get you a present. Just because. In this particular instance, she seems a little like Ari to me. A little bit. Yeah, I can see that. Meanwhile, Foth is going to find rope. He didn't take Sam's advice back when he had the opportunity with the tinker and is regretting it. Sam, as in Samwise Gamgee. Absolutely. <laughs> Never know when you're going to need some rope. One thing I will note is that both who is not inebriated who the last time that he had anything to drink was the day before with the pegs is shooting down all of the ideas that denna is throwing out we can't send the dracus off of a cliff it just won't work or i could make a simulacrum of the dracus but what's the point i could try this but that seems dumb i could try that but uh, would it work but Denna is throwing out idea after idea after idea, trying to get them to stick. So finally, Quoth decides that they have to give the creature an overdose because they know that this is the only thing that they can reliably do to control its behavior. An overdose in order to kill it. Yeah. I really do think that it's funny, though, that Denna is... She's like, aw, we're going to use the Ophalum? But what about my pony? Obviously... She's smart enough to know that she really doesn't want a pony. But Kvothe is so, so invested in the idea that he should get her a new musical instrument. Which I think is really just so Kvothe and very cute and sweet. And We continue on this line of cute and sweet where Kvothe is taking care of the drunk girl at the party. And he is... Being responsible, if a bit more careful than maybe she is stating that she wants him to be. 
I think in this instance, he is being the exact right amount of careful. I do too. I think, however, she does reveal something about how she feels about him in general. And some of this isn't just because she's drugged. I think she would like him to maybe be a little more assertive about how he feels and more open about how he feels about her in general. Less inhibited. Yes. Less focused on thinking about what she thinks and stating how he feels. And I think that is some of that truth that happens when your inhibitions are lowered. You say how you truly feel about people and you ask them to maybe think a little bit more about saying how they feel. So in terms of saying truths that maybe you wouldn't say if you weren't inebriated, back when I was living with two of my good friends down in Southern Oregon, I did have an instance of getting past the point that I would ever want to be drunk. And I told one of my friends that he should shower more. <laughs> I remember this part. I don't remember all of that night. I do remember that part. And I am still mortified to this day, 10 years later. I really wish that I hadn't been that mean. <laughs> yeah, sometimes people say mean things that they really feel. But if they were thinking better of it, wouldn't. Or would find a more diplomatic way of saying it. Yeah. Did it have the desired effect? Actually, yes. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, that wasn't all bad. I mean, I moved in and I just for a while thought that I was missing when he was taking his shower because he worked overnights and I was awake during the day and he was awake during the night. Nope. Was not missing it at all. Nope. <laughs> but eventually he did start showering and it was after I told him point blank because I was drunk I do want to point out though in this little section of the book that I am very proud of Quoth for his behavior he could easily easily take advantage of her there are people that would take her saying all of these things about wanting to cuddle up with him or wanting to have him tell her the truth and think about her more and all these other suggestive things that she is not so worried about saying to him. And he's just sitting there going, you know, there are names for people who take advantage of women who are not in full control of themselves. And none of those names will ever rightfully be applied to me. I applaud that decision. Like we said, he's taking the right amount of care. If the person that you are with is drunk, and I'm going to put this as people, not women, because it would be easy enough to take advantage of a man or a non-binary person, a gender person, what have you, just as easily as it is to take advantage of a drunk woman. And it happens. And it does happen, and it shouldn't be looked at as though well, but you're not a woman, so therefore we're not going to take you seriously. Men and non-binary people are harassed and abused, and we should not be making them feel terrible or shamed or wrong for speaking out and telling people that this has happened to them. Absolutely. The fact is that a person's agency in these situations is significantly diminished, and Regardless of your own gender and the gender of the other person, 
if you are sober, you have more agency in that moment than they do, which means there's a power imbalance, and with great power must also come great responsibility. And that means it is your job to make sure that they are protected and not abused or taken advantage of. I know that it's oftentimes easy for people to think that they don't have power by virtue of their sobriety, but it's true. You have all of your faculties available to you. You're able to consider consequences and you're able to give consent in a way that a person who is intoxicated is not. Segwaying on, <laughs> while Denna is off spacing around a bit. Collecting firewood. So Quoth engages in what is basically a job interview question. <laughs> How much ophalum will poison a Dracus? How many gumballs will fit in the Empire State Building? <laughs> He's essentially having to go in on a lot of dead reckoning. And then from there, it's trying to make sure that he's got just enough. And then he realizes, oh, better to be on the safe side. Again, their goal here is not to dose the creature. It's to overdose the creature to the point that it kills it, which means better safe than sorry. You probably use more than you think. So he's having to constantly do a bunch of mental maths and constant doubling of everything. <laughs> So his amount of ophalum being used ends up growing exponentially. I tend to think that in this case, Denna's suggestion of why don't you just use all of it would have been the right thing to do in the very first place. Yeah, because at the end of the day, they've decided that that's the right thing to do, period. And any treasure that they were to get out of it would have been pure bonus anyway. So at that point, thinking about having to conserve this for bonus isn't necessarily profitable. Or at least when you're considering my life and or the life of everybody that lives in this small town that the Dracus is about to rampage versus stuff or money, mostly stuff. I mean, I've had to be in situations where I look at what I own and what I would be grabbing on my way out if something catastrophic were to happen. I just did that. Thanks, Fires. Thanks, Fire, 15 miles away from here. In fact, our recording studio is full of what would fit in our car that we would feel absolutely terrible leaving. And when I say full, I mean it's not really that full. It's cluttered. Mostly it's musical instruments because they're expensive and keepsakes because they're one of a kind. And cat stuff. And cat stuff. Because we love them. Because as much as we have complained about our cats and Sokka's current obsession with taking his collar off or Leela's current obsession with digging the carpet around the office door so that she can be let in every day, we love them a lot and their lives and our lives are much more valuable than the stuff that we own. Same thing is going for how Kvothe and Denna should be looking at the pile of drugs they have in their possession versus the lives of not only them, but the entire town of Traven. Yeah. And while Kvothe doesn't have a very high opinion of the way the people in the town have treated Denna, that doesn't mean there are no good people there. The next couple of pages see Denna mostly talking to Kvothe in her inebriated state, 
all of her inhibitions have been lowered. Quoth is making the ill-advised decision to try to explain to the person who won't remember any of this why he was unable to make their date. I kind of get the feeling that he's doing that more to relieve his own guilty conscience as opposed to actually make her feel better. Although, granted, it might make her feel better in the moment. And then she says some silly things about how Kvothe has the sweetest face and it's like the perfect kitchen. And I do want to point out something. This is a really good analogy, especially for old people like us, because we are currently doing a lot of wishful thinking house hunting. And oh my goodness, kitchens are really tough. Our current kitchen looks like it should be functional, and it is not. Two people can't cook at the same time. Two people can't even be in there at the same time. Sometimes a cat and a person cannot even be in there at the same time. Our cat takes up a sixth of the floor. Yeah, and the counter space is extremely limited. Not necessarily what you might think, just looking at it, but as soon as you actually start putting anything in there, suddenly you realize, oh, there is no counter space in this. I am fully aware that we sound old and curmudgeon But the perfect kitchen is a really sweet compliment, actually. I wouldn't mind a perfect kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> I'd really like one. We have a whole lot of innocent yet slightly suggestive actions that are being taken on Quoth's part to try to make sure that Denna is not just going to keel over. This is where we get a huge reminder that he is a 16-year-old boy. That poor kid. Her boob touched my arm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but when you were 16? Oh yeah, I know the feeling. Yeah, I brushed up against this person. Ah, all the feelings, all the hormones. Ah. And to his credit, he keeps it business-like as best he can. Absolutely. Although I will point out that as a society, I would really like it if we could get over the idea that touching a person platonically was a bad thing. Yeah. Well, and I think here, when he's pushing his ear up against her chest so that he can listen to her lungs... That is an act of trying to care for someone and doing so in a way that is not meant to be romantic. Not even a little bit. He's doing it for care, and I think that would fall under that platonic. No, I'm talking about platonic cuddling. I'm talking about platonic hugging. Mm. I am talking about I should be able to put my foot on somebody else's leg without feeling like, oh God, do they think that I'm trying to come on to them? Yes. What Kvothe is actually doing is not what I'm talking about. What Kvothe is doing is the equivalent of checking for her pulse at her wrist, but her lungs happen to be under her boobs. Darn human anatomy. Right. It has nothing to do with comfort and everything to do with health and safety of his companion, of his friend. And if he were to put his ear up against Will or Sim's chest, no one would think that it was remotely suggestive. Not even a little. Yeah. And again, he's trying to take good care of her. And she also here reveals a little bit of vulnerability, which is extremely rare for Denna, as she talks about how she had pneumonia as a child. How it makes her feel like maybe 
she's living on borrowed time, how maybe she, in a just world, should probably be dead. Which reveals something kind of sad about how she views herself and how she values herself. It's tragic, because she clearly is someone of value. She is someone of worth and agency and who has great intelligence and great gifts that she can share with the world. And she thinks that she's someone who shouldn't be alive. This also gives us a little bit of an insight as to why or how she can be convinced by the wrong people that she is not worthy of respect or being treated well. How she could possibly deserve the treatment that Master Ash has been doling out. People ask, why don't abuse victims leave? It's because in many instances they have had their self-worth so, so, so stripped away, systematically stripped away, and it can take years to get to that point where they think that they deserve it, and I have been there, where I didn't think that I deserved better, and I didn't realize that better really existed. Better really does exist. You are a stark example of that. Aww. You really are. I mean, I didn't know that calm and cared for and like legitimately cared for not twistedly like but who's going to care about you you just quietly do that you just actually care and treat me well where a lot of abusers hurt their victims and then tell their victims that no matter what they do it's better than not having that in their life like it's better to be abused than to be alone. Which, for that, that's bullshit. Quoth's response to Denna's revelation about Ash is, I think, really telling. His response is not, you should be with me, I would never treat you like that. It is, no, you are worthy of better. She can pick who she wants for herself, but she ought to know that she deserves better than that. Everyone Everyone, everyone, everyone deserves better than that. Absolutely. And in that instant, I think she needs to hear someone that she cares about tell her that. It's one of the rare times that I think we can say Kvothe is actually being wise. He's still not my Fernemos. <laughs> I think that's actually a pretty good segue to talk about our Fernemos of the week. Alrighty. So I have two choices in the book. I don't like them. I don't like either of these choices. So you know what? My choice is actually Patrick Rothfuss. Okay. A lot of fantasy novels are very male-centric. A lot of these weird and or toxic ideals of what a hero is get perpetuated in fantasy novels, high fantasy novels. I grew up reading some of these high fantasy novels. I read things that were progressive for the time that they were written. And oh boy, is there just not a more damning phrase than progressive for the time that they were written. <laughs> oh yeah. I read all of the Dragon Riders of Pern books and you listened to one of them when I got it on Audible. Like, you're like, wait a second. And I'm like, 1969. It was written in 1969. Please realize it was written in 1969. And a female protagonist 
that was strong and not simpering was progressive for the time. <laughs> and then we continue to listen on and a male protagonist is hitting the female protagonist and I'm just like, progressive for the time? Progressive for the time? Please just, oh god. This was written over the course of a long time and ultimately published in, what, 2007? You don't think about it, but 2007 was 13 years ago. Yeah, there's a little instance of gay panic in the book that makes me want to just wretch. But the thought that the young male protagonist does not deserve to be gifted with this pretty filly of a woman. Oh my god. There are not many fantasy books that I can point to where the thought process is don't take advantage of the drunk girl. There's a lot of instances that I could probably point to throughout literature where this section of the book would just be the two of them having sex and him ultimately hurting her rather than being a very innocent and sweet section of the book that can teach people who read high fantasy can be a good example for how men can respectfully treat women in these instances. Yeah, Kvothe and the Society of Timorant are not the least sexist things that I could ever point to in books that I have read. It's not the most progressive story that I could ever point to in my entire life. But what it is, is it's taking this conquest narrative and saying, well, that's horse shirt. I am not going to do that. You know, I think you've got a good point there. And it's something that I've noticed as well. And just in general, I think unrequited love narratives are oftentimes oversimplified. The thing about an unrequited love is that it's something that really hurts. I've been on the wrong side of it, but you are not owed requited love. And it's okay to admit that you're hurt and it's okay to admit that you're disappointed and it's okay to talk about that, but it does not entitle you to try and grab it, to try and take something that is not yours. I think I said it last week. We just watched the 1994 miniseries of The Stand, and there is a character that is the, the equivalent of what we call an incel now. Uh. <coughs> vomit noises. All the vomit noises. Because he has a crush on a girl, and he feels like he is owed that girl. And then when that girl wants someone else, because she has agency, damn it, he turns bitter and turns towards the evil side. Ah! I mean, the stand is not exactly subtle, but that said, it's interesting how oftentimes that sort of incel narrative allows unrequited love, which is a real thing, to get used to justify these feelings of entitlement and resentment. And terrible behavior. Right. No, it doesn't excuse terrible behavior at all. Also, it perpetuates this thought that the friend zone is a terrible, terrible thing. Like, being friends with a woman is an unacceptable consolation prize. Right. And here's the thing. If you love someone, and they don't love you back in the way that you want them to, but your friendship with them still means something to them, and you care about their well-being, that friendship is the way that you can share your love 
it can actually be something that you are doing for them because you care about them. On the flip side, if you love someone and they don't love you back and you use that as an excuse to be an abusive asshole, you don't love them. Exactly. Before we're done with Patrick Rothfuss as my Frenemos, I want to point out a couple of little passages in this section that kind of make me happy. Pat is really good at poetic prose. The top of this small hill felt like an island in a great ocean of night. In this story that is this sprawling narrative, he takes time to include these little vignettes that are so powerfully visual pausing points. They're what lend the story a sense of place. They ground it. There's also just these little moments that feel very much more real than what a storybook narrative would feel like. I really liked that she was leaning up against me, but oh man, my back was starting to hurt. Yeah, sometimes the biomechanics of cuddling are overly <laughs> romanticized in stories. My arm was falling asleep. <laughs> my shoulder hurts. I'm old. My back hurts. My hip hurts. I mean, we've had that ourselves. <laughs> I think I had that this morning. Could you roll over? Your breath stinks. <laughs> Could you roll over? You're snoring in my face. Yep. <laughs> but also, I think, although I made a little bit of fun earlier about how nothing happens in this chapter... A lot happened in the previous couple, and then nothing major happens here except they figure out how to poison the Dracus. I think that Pat Rothfuss is really good at the interest curve, and that that's another thing to point out as a practically wise person, or a practically wise example. Because we're getting near the end of the book. Some people are just like, balls to the walls, we're just going to go and go and go and go and exhaust the reader. And then when the end of the book comes, you're like, but wait, 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 wait. Did I miss an entire chapter of what? <laughs> okay, that happened and now it's done. There's no ups and downs, no curves, no time to take a breath. This chapter or these two chapters are a chance to take your breath between imminent danger and imminent danger. And they also remind us of why we like these characters and why we care about what happens to them. That's also a crucial part. Some of my favorite episodes of TV or sections in movies happen in that calm before and after the storm where you just have characters talking, whether it's about life or about what's coming up, what they're afraid of, where they're actually revealing something real about themselves. And those are what give you something to actually care about and what make you care about the outcome of the storm. I also think that he wrote about how Denna feels decently well. It's being filtered through Kvothe, however many more years later. He says things that feel real, and if you have never been abused or been around an abuse victim before, you might not think that it feels real. But the way that Denna describes how Master Ash convinced her to let him hit her is a thing. It feels real. And Kvothe's reaction, that bile coming up from his stomach, that flash of anger 
not just at Master Ash, but also at Denna. I mean, I have had friends who have dealt with abusive people in their lives. And I have been angry, like little ball of rage, angry out at everything, including the person who is, quote, allowing themselves to be hurt. And it's not nice. It's not charitable. It's not great. It's not admirable. It's not helpful. But it feels real. And I think that placing things like that, that feel grounded, feel real, in a story that is fantastical, makes the book that much better. Agreed. I'll accept your phronemos. Thank you. All right. And so with that, it's time for us to talk about the interesting fact of the week, taking to heart the lessons of Master Elodin. So I got one for you here. Today, we're going to talk about walking fish. That sounds terrifying. These are actually quite tiny. And actually, if you look at the pictures, kind of cute. Are they kind of cute or are they creepy cute? Yes. Okay, so my style. Yeah, I think you'd find them pretty cute because they're like cute little salamanders. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So while walking fish are not unheard of, new research suggests that 11 species of South Asian hillstream loaches could have this capability, which may shed some light on how evolutionary links made the leap from being purely aquatic to a more amphibious lifestyle. So are they actually fish? Yeah, these are actually fish. So a group of researchers are examining specimens from each of these species with high-speed video and then high-resolution CT scans to examine how their muscle groups and skeletal structures work together to create locomotion. And so what they found is that in most fish, there's no bony connection between the backbone and the pelvic fins. These fish are different because they have hips. So the hip bone is a sacral rib, and within the fish they studied, they found three morphological variants ranging from very thin and not well-connected to robust and having a sturdy connection. They expect that those with the largest, most robust hip bones are the ones that are going to have the best walking ability. And what they've been able to do to test their hypotheses is actually create skeletal robotic rigs that mimic these various things, and so then they're able to test them out to see how that would work. The scientists hope to use these insights to identify other prehistoric examples of amphibious fish to identify where land walking first surfaced. I'm going to give it to you mostly because of the robotics, because they made little robot walking fish. Yeah. Isn't that cool? I like that part a lot. Well, and it's also the thing that interested me was instead of trying to say, okay, we're going to discover all of the genetic history of these fish they're actually looking at the broader evolutionary patterns related to just the structure necessary to be able to accomplish these tasks and figuring out what that can tell us about the ancestral amphibians. I mean, I'm going to say it again. You had me at robotic walking fish. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. All right, no cherries for me today. Not today, though... I think when we get to the wise man's fear, we may need to revisit our rules for some of these things, because I will note that there is a marked lack in the last however many episodes of either one of us losing. We may have to revisit the structure in general. Although we do still have some of our torture devices in the form of, you have not eaten all of the raspberry pop-tarts, and I have not touched a cherry ripe in months, other than to torture you. You can get rid of those. I could. Or they could be a constant reminder of what you are up against. 
<sighs> There's nothing like the reminder of impending doom to encourage excellence. You grok my point. Anyway, let's share our seven words. You have seven words from the book this week? I do. And while there are a lot of them, there are a lot of them. I mean, look at this, Pate. Look, just look at this. Oh, yeah, that's a lot of orange. <laughs> I just showed pages 628 through 629. <laughs> I think there is more orange highlighter in that part of the book than there is blue highlighter in that part of the book. The unfortunate thing is that none of them seem like great seven words. I think, why do you think it's a she, followed by why do you think it's a he, is kind of funny. I think there's no way we can kill that, and you'll probably have to skip your pony, are great, but just not really grabbing me. You lost your liar in that fire. Almost got it. I need to listen to your breathing, which I think is actually kind of a thing that we skipped over, how the wind affects Denna, how air is affecting Denna, how she has trouble taking a breath. But Kvoth, with his power of wind, is kind of able to help her through that. Also, if we will remember back to episode six, where Kvoth was a complete and utter idiot and did a binding between the air outside and the air in his lungs. He has also had trouble breathing as a child. There's goose flesh broke out over my whole body. That one's kind of a nod to how this 16 year old boy who is more adult than we might expect a 16 year old boy to be, how it's still grounding him as being a teenager. She says something that would probably make him melt and she goes, your hair smells really nice, she said. At the same time, though, she's said, I've never had anyone try that before in terms of I need to listen to your lungs being almost like a way to hit on her. There are two, though, that I'm kind of willing to choose, and I don't know which one I want. We'll try them out. She was soft and warm, indescribably precious. As worried as Kvoth is, for her, for her safety, for her health. He is finding this entire experience to be pleasurable in a way, and not in a way that's creepy or overly sexual. Just, this is really nice. It does feel nice to take care of someone else. And then my arm ended up under her head, which I think is very, very real, because chances are his arm is now asleep. Yeah, that sounds pretty relatable. <laughs> There's another one. I mean, this is just full. It's enough that I get you sometimes. I think that's the one. Because that's really something that talks about how she feels. And it says something about how Denna feels about their relationship. And how much she values it and how thankful she is for it. Okay, I think that I'll go with that one then. All right. So mine is something that's been kind of going through my head a little bit, just in multiple ways. It is tied to both the current fire and smoke and ash situation, and also the Bill and Ted situation. This is a song lyric from William Kelleher and Brand Daler 
from the song Rufus Lives as performed by Mastodon on the Bill and Ted Face the Music soundtrack. And it is, we've got to get out of here. And I've got to say, you know, normally I'm pretty laid back, but I've been feeling on edge over the course of the past week since the smoke started rolling in and the days have been sepia-toned out my window <laughs> and there have been increasingly dire warnings you know through the news parts of our county people are evacuated so yeah i've been on edge and that feeling has been there and i've been keeping it together but it's something that feels good to be able to acknowledge and to actually talk about that feeling whether it's just through a piece of music or through literature or something like that just to give voice to it now when you say we've got to get out of here what is your end goal i think at this point here could just be the time and sometimes just surviving this time is enough to qualify so for me when you say it like that we've got to get out of here to me feels like the situation rather than the physical place. And this is not a political thing. This is an accurate, scientific, real thing. Our planet is heating up. I don't give, I don't give two shirts why you think that is happening. It is happening. It is verifiably happening. And because the planet is warming up and record high temperatures have been recorded, what is it like? almost every year for this entire century so far, it is causing wildfire, it is causing drought, it is causing all sorts of terrible weather phenomenon, stronger hurricane seasons, what have you. I think one of those situations that we need to get out of is barreling towards the heat death of the planet. And again, I don't care what anyone thinks is the cause of all of this, because as soon as I say the words climate change, you're all going to be like political, social justice, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, I don't care. It just is. Let's just take the situation as it is and let us figure out a way to fix it. One of those ways to fix it is to hire people for the EPA, including the head of the EPA, which is appointed in the United States, finding a way to make sure that that person believes in science. My soapbox. Follow the advice of scientists on how we can systematically reverse or slow down or stop, I hope, the cooking of our planet. That would be nice. Yep. And this is something that's going to require system level change. It's going to take more than just individual accountability. So, anyway. After that little soapbox, Thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 80 and 81 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of best laid plans. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend, Shawnee Jang, for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination Courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page. We just got our third patron. 
for the second time. We've had a few and then we've gotten a few not there, which is perfectly fine. Don't think that you have to. And also no guilt if you are one of the people that used to be a patron and is not anymore. We absolutely love you no matter what. That being said, if you decide you would like to become a patron, things that are available on our Patreon page are early access to our show, special Patreon-only bonus pods, occasional art pieces if I can get my creative spark back into that gear. <laughs> I owe some people stickers. I know that. <laughs> Sorry. And there are a lot of other things like if you're nuts and you really want to pay us a lot, I am more than willing to send you random art pieces because we have a lot of them and I have nowhere to put them. But if you like Avatar The Last Airbender, you might wind up with some perler bead art. Who knows? Seriously, though, if there's anything that sounds appealing, but the prices on there are kind of wonky and you would like to have us adjust them, I don't mind considering it if you want to let us know. We're open to suggestions and we're friendly. We also just want to talk to people. Yes, that's a 2020 mood right there. Oh my god. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. It would like to fork some trees, please. Yes, I said that right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>